So my name is Aaron, and I want to welcome you to, to week three of a, um, we'll end up being here for a number of weeks, but a series that we've titled Equipped. And uh, really, really what this entire series is focused on is a set of spiritual disciplines um, and maybe you haven't heard it framed this way, that, that followers of Jesus all over the world have been practicing for thousands of years. So these aren't new ideas. These are, these are really ancient spiritual disciplines. And our whole goal with this series is to help you grab a hold of them, to help you as an individual and to, to help us as a church corporately to take these ancient spiritual disciplines off the shelf, grab hold of them so that we can experience spiritual growth in our own lives individually and corporately as a church. And just a little caveat here, spiritual disciplines are not things that you have to do in order to be saved. Um, only Jesus can do the work that, that, that needs to be done to save our lives and to set our lives on a completely new trajectory. But they are things, these are disciplines that you should practice if you're interested in experiencing spiritual growth. And, and, and when I think of spiritual growth in general, I think of two types of disciplines that really, I think they can contribute to growth of, of any kind, spiritual or otherwise. And um, I don't know if you, you know this about me, but from the time that I was five years old to my early 20s, um, I spent a lot of time on a baseball diamond. And so um, sports are something that's near and dear to my heart. I'm extremely competitive. Um, I try to suppress that, so hopefully you haven't seen that part of me. But when I think of uh, disciplines, I think of them in two terms. I think of them in terms of training and in terms of treatment. And, and when I played college baseball, um, training included things like weightlifting and running and batting practice and fielding practice, uh, stretching, things like nutrition and strategy and running through plays and, and the like. And, um, and all of those things, really what they were, they were things, they were disciplines you had to engage in if you had any interest of developing as a player, you had to be disciplined enough to do those things. And the whole purpose of training was to help players grow individually and to help a team develop collectively. And so training, you could think of it in these terms. It's a proactive discipline for the sake of growth. And now there's another, there's another discipline that comes to mind. Um, and it's, it's very, it, it's, it's like like training, but different in its purpose. And that's the discipline of treatment. And so unlike training, treatment is, is way more reactive. And its purpose is really just to get you back on track, to help you recover to the degree that you can actually train again. And anyone who's ever been injured knows this. And so whether you're an athlete or not. And so when I was a junior in college, I was playing shortstop and uh, I went for a ball that was hit up the middle um, meaning the middle of the field, so right behind second base. And as soon as that ball hit my glove, I felt this really intense pop in my right leg. And um, my next move was to try to make the throw to first, which I couldn't do because I actually fell down. And what I realized is um, because I had this burning sensation in my right leg is that my hamstring was torn. And so what became quickly apparent to me is that um, I didn't need another training protocol. What I needed was a treatment protocol. What I needed was treatment um, that was going to help me get back on 
to the field. And I didn't just need the treatment protocol. What, what I was becoming to realize is that I needed to be disciplined enough to follow it. And, and, and the real harsh, difficult reality about the treatment protocol that I needed is it wasn't really going to make me a better player. It was just designed to get me back on the field. And so in baseball or in any sport or really any area of life, um, training is what will help you develop and grow, but it's treatment that'll help you recover and get back in the game. And there are spiritual disciplines. I think the same can be said about our spiritual lives and our spiritual walk or our faith. And I think there are spiritual disciplines, some of which are more like training, things like prayer and Bible study and, and meditation. Uh, they're more, and then there are others that are more like treatments that are really designed to get us back on track, especially when we're navigating spiritual challenges. And so there's a specific spiritual discipline that I want to share with you today that I, I believe is, is um, I, we, we find it in Scripture, and it's really designed to help us navigate a spiritual condition that I think is so universal that everyone experiences it. And the condition I'm talking about is spiritual drought. And, and just for the sake of, of, of us being on the same page, spiritual drought is a sense, what it is, is it's a sense of spiritual separation from God. It's a sense that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you study the Bible or how much time you spend in prayer or how deep your meditative practices are, you can't seem to connect with God and, 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 there, and therefore you, can't, you don't seem to be growing spiritually. And what I know, what I believe to be true about us is the same way that our bodies crave food and water, our, our souls crave deep spiritual connection with God. And so the, all of this begs the question really for us that what, is there anything that we can do or what can we do when we don't sense God's presence in our lives? And I believe, I'm convinced that seeking God is a spiritual discipline that can be particularly helpful when you find yourself feeling disconnected from God. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at two psalms today, Psalm 42 and 43. And really, those two psalms um, were written as one coherent piece. We see them as Psalm 42 and 43, but they're one coherent writing. And uh, I think they're they, they give us a unique understanding of this spiritual discipline that I'm calling seeking God through a spiritual drought. And now, um, spirit, Psalms 42 and 43 were, were, were written by someone. They're not written just to be helpful. They were written by someone who was legitimately experiencing a loss of, God's, of, of the sense of God's presence in their life. And, and the writer of these Psalms isn't David. It's actually one of the sons of Korah. And, and if you're familiar with the sons of Korah, you know that they were deeply spiritual people. In fact, they were, they were kind of like the worship leaders in the tabernacle. They were responsible for worship that took place uh, in the tabernacle. And they were also played a huge part in the writing of, of all of the Psalms. And so these two Psalms in particular were written more than 3,000 years ago. And what they are really is a, it, they're a song. And they're a song that people going through spiritual drought have, have reflected on and meditated on and read for thousands of years. And they're so relatable. And here's why I think they're relatable. They're like this raw, vulnerable 
picture, they paint this raw, vulnerable picture of, of, of the sense that we get anytime we feel spiritually disconnected from God. And so I think the verses that we're going to look at today really show us how universal spiritual drought is. It's something that we all experience. They're going to show us some of the conditions that can lead to it. I think that's always helpful to try to figure out why things happen. Uh, but lastly, they're going to outline, and I think this is more important than why things happen, is what do you do about it? They're going to outline the spiritual discipline of seeking God when you find yourself right in the middle of a spiritual drought. And so the first thing I want to point out is, it, this is just common sense as far as I'm concerned, it's that everyone experiences spiritual drought. So in, in Psalm 42 verse 1, what we read, um, we find a metaphor there, and it's about a deer. Uh, and, and what it says specifically is, as a deer longs for, or some translations say pants, uh, for streams of water, so I long for you, God. And so, so this, this metaphor of this deer, this panting deer is not just a thirsty deer. You need to understand this. It's a deer that's literally dying of thirst, and it's come to this stream. It's the same stream that it's come to every time in its life that it's had a sense of thirst, and it's come there looking for this cool, clear water that's going to quench its thirst. And what it finds is that the stream is dry. It's bone dry. It's completely dry. And, and, and this metaphor is really intended to paint a picture of the sense that this person has with regards to their relationship of, with God. And so maybe, maybe you're in a place right now where your relationship with God really just feels like a dry riverbed, that the streams you ordinarily drink from, your prayer life, your meditation, your Bible study, they feel so dry and God feels so distant that you're dying of a thirst that only his presence can quench. And if that's where you're at, I, I do want to point out, because I feel like there's a, a really important, important distinction that the writer of this psalm makes, I want to point something out. That, and, and it's in verse 2. It says, I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? And so all of this is not a declaration of this individual's disbelief in God. Really what it is is just a declaration that he feels distant. From God, And those are two very distinct things. So feeling distant from God is not the same as abandoning your belief in God. And now the challenge with distance, I think we've all experienced this to some degree or another, is that the further we feel away from someone, the easier it becomes to just make up stories or narratives or have ideas about them that just simply are inaccurate or untrue. I think distance really does cause a degree of distortion, and it causes us to dehumanize people and uh, maybe reduce them to a post or a comment or an idea or sometimes a mistake. And, and did you ever notice, maybe you've noticed this in your own personal life, that when you feel distant from someone or disconnected from someone, rarely, rarely do we fill in those long, silent breaks with good information or positive ideas. Uh, we tend to fill in the silence with dismal thoughts uh, things that actually cause us to become more disillusioned than reconnected with the people that we feel disconnected from. And so what I want you to see is that the psalmist is not creating his own narrative about God based on his own feelings. He's not filling in the blanks based on what he's sensing in his own personal life. What he's doing is he's getting vulnerable and all he's saying is, God, I feel distant from you. I feel like you've walked away. I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you've left me behind. And what I think this shows us, um, kind of by way of implication, is that a spiritual connection to God really is uh, of utmost importance when it comes to our overall 
well-being. Deep connection with God is something that we don't just crave. I think it's something that we actually need. And, here, and, he, and, and, and here's why. When we experience it, the burdens lift. The weight lifts. And when we feel like we've lost it, those things we were wrestling with, the, the burdens we were carrying before, can come all the way back and feel heavier than they did before. And so what I, need, what I need us to understand is these two psalms aren't a picture of a loss of faith. They're just a picture of a loss of a feeling that we all experience. And what we don't know, what the psalm, these psalms never tell us is why. We don't know why he's experiencing this. Now what we do know is there are other psalms that talk about this spiritual disconnection or separation from God. And it's very clear that it's because of some wrongdoing or some sin in our lives. But that's not the case here. This person is experiencing deep spiritual disconnection from God even though it appears as if he's done nothing wrong. And so what I, what I know to be true about pain and trauma and loss is this isn't going to be news to anybody, but it's challenging. And I think it becomes even more so challenging when we don't have a clear reason of why. And because here, here, here's what I find myself doing. Generally, when something goes wrong, I want to know what caused it. And, and to an extent, it, it's almost like I need to be able to blame someone or something. Like I need an outlet towards which I'm going to direct my anger, my pain, my disappointment. And uh, this, this helps me regain control in the present. And to an extent, it, it, it makes me believe that somehow, if I do everything right, I'm going to avoid that same degree of pain in the future. And, and that's, a, that's such a terrible assumption. Um, and and, and what, what, I'm, what I'm driving at isn't all of that. What I want, you, what I want to help us understand is, is not that we shouldn't look for reasons. It's, it's that we should be careful when we're looking for reasons. And we should always be open when we're looking for reasons why things are the way that they are in our lives, that we have a part to own. But definitely do this care- carefully because here's the challenge with assigning blame. Um, it almost assumes that our problems are somehow unavoidable, right? It almost assumes that if we do all the right things, nothing will go wrong. And um, you you probably don't know anyone that openly professes this, but I do think it's kind of an underlying belief that, that drives how we behave because we have enough life's experience to know that we have far less control over our circumstances than we feel comfortable admitting. And so the point I'm driving at is this. You could be doing all the right things as a follower of Jesus and still experience spiritual drought. And so because of how universal spiritual drought is, I think it'd be helpful to, to talk about some factors that can lead to it. Now, the caveat is they don't always cause it, but they certainly can create the conditions that lead to it. And the first one that I see very clearly in these Psalms is uh, disconnection from community. Take a look at verse 4. Here's what we read there. It says, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. And then down in verse 6, what we read is, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now there's a whole lot going on there, but to summarize all that, this person is just remembering. He's remembering what it was like to be found in the community of God. And so there's no real explanation as to why, but the psalmist is highlighting that some sort of transition took, took place in his life that's completely disrupted 
his connection to the community of God. Some, for some reason, some unknown reason to us, he's moved from the southern part of Judah where he was a part of this really robust faith community. And that's what he's describing. And, and what, what becomes clear in his description is that um, how integral this faith community was to his overall well-being and specifically his spiritual well-being. He's remembering the worship gatherings. He's remembering the celebrations. He's remembering gathering around tables to celebrate and remember the faithfulness of God through the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life. And what he's also um, alarming us of is that all of that for some reason is gone because of this shift in his life. We don't know why He's disconnected, and that's not the point. The point here isn't why he's disconnected. The point is that he's missing something integral to his well-being because he is disconnected. And so another thing that I think we can infer from from these verses is that um, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, these are things that we should practice individually, but they're also things that we we should practice in community. You see, there's individual worship, and then there's worshiping community, like we, like we did today. There's, there's individual Bible study, and there's Bible study in community, kind of like what we're doing right now. There's individual prayer, and there's prayer in community. And so all of these things are, 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 are not the same. They actually seem the same, but they're different. And, and even though they're different, they are all necessary. So there's individual spiritual disciplines and there's community spiritual disciplines. And I think this could be challenging for us to hear, maybe not us who are here right now, but people in our culture, um, which is highly individualistic. And in fact, there have actually been studies that show a vast majority of people living in the United States of America are convinced that spirituality in general is just a personal choice. It's something that, that, that you can do on an individual level and be okay. There are people that believe they can be a good Christian, a good Jew, a good Muslim, just a good spiritual person by way of individual spiritual practices alone. And you, you might disagree with this perspective, but I just want to offer you this. There, chances are you probably know someone who's walking out their faith disconnected from a faith community. Right? I bet you know someone that, that, that claims to be a Christian but has issues with God's church. I bet you know someone just like that. But what I do want to point out is that if we, if we misunderstand the importance of community, we're kind of misunderstanding um, how we're designed. And what I mean by that is there's only a certain degree of growth you're going to experience in your life individually. And in fact, I take it as far to say you'll never really become who God intended you to be apart from, from, from walking this thing out with a community of other Jesus followers. And a community, just by way of definition, I'm not going like, to give you a textbook definition of it, but here's what I've discovered about community. It's not something that you show up to. It's something that you have to actively become a part of. You have to work on building relationships. You have to work on discovering who you're going to pray with, who you're going to study with, who you're going to confess your sin with, who you're going to walk through life with, who you're going to share your burdens with, who you're going to allow to get close enough to you to actually know you. Because, see, community isn't who you know, it's who gets to know you to the degree that they know your struggles and your strengths. And community isn't something that just a few people can build it's something that we all have to build together. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that in this passage that when, when we find ourselves disconnected from the community of God, we can experience 
a, a spiritual disconnect, a connection from God himself. And so this first factor that can cause us to, to slip into spiritual drought is disconnection from community. The, sex, the second is a disruption of reality. Take a look at verse 3. It says, all day long people say to me, where is your God? And so th- this person is disconnected from their faith community. And, and, he, and, and at this point, it's kind of like, it seems as if he's surrounded with a, a bunch of enemies. And they're taunting him and they're asking him questions. Um, they're saying point blank, like, where's your God at? And, 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 and as far as I'm concerned, the only reasonable explanation for a question like that, where's your God on this is that something happened. Something traumatic has, has unfolded that's disrupted life as they knew it. It's left people feeling unsettled and angry and disillusioned. And now they're hurling verbal assaults. And, and, and what ends up happening is the psalmist ends up asking the same exact question. Look at verse 9. Here's what he asks God. He says, why have you forgotten me? And look, I don't know what happened to trigger this question. But what I do know is that this is the kind of question that we ask when something shakes our reality or just completely annihilates our expectations. I don't know about you, but I generally am not asking, where are you, God, when everything's going well? And the only time I've found myself asking that question of God is when the things either happening in me or around me aren't aligned with who I believe God to be. They just don't fit the description of who I believe God to be. And that, that can happen when things spiral out of my control or something happens to dis- disrupt our reality in a way that's, that's difficult to explain or painful to endure. And all that can lead to, to a sense of disillusionment, not just about life, but about God as well. And I think for many of us, for many people, um, maybe some of us, but I think many people in general, um, the last... 12 months and counting, and as we've navigated this global pandemic and, and, and the way that it's, it's cost millions of people their lives and their livelihoods and their sense of security, I think to some degree or another, it's kind of the, the pandemic has in a way traumatized every sphere of our lives. And, and to a degree, uh, the entirety of humanity is, is grieving on s- some level because of this disruption to our reality. And then you, you, you couple that with um, things that are unfolding socially and culturally with regards to racism and justice and equality, and matters just get more intense. And I think those, all of those things together, these disruptions of our reality, really what they do is create circumstances that allow us or contribute to feelings of disillusionment toward everyone, everything, including God. And so we've talked about Disconnection from community and disruption of reality and how those things can lead to spiritual drought. But there's one more factor I want to put before you, and it's this. It's deterioration physically. Look at verse 3. It says, my tears have been my food day and night. And what, what we see here is this: it, there's a loss of appetite. There's a degree of insomnia, and if you if you were to sit with a, a met, a, like a healthcare professional or a counselor and talk about insomnia and um, a loss of appetite, what they would probably conclude is that you're you're either experiencing clinical depression or you're pretty close to it. And so what we're starting to see in this verse is that there is a deep connection between the physical 
and the spiritual when it, becomes, when it comes to the nature of our lives. There's a physician and a theologian by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and here's how he described this connection between the physical and the spiritual. He said, anyone who holds the view that as long as you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what the condition of your body is, will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. There are some in whose case it's clear that the cause of their depression is mainly physical. On the other hand, people who are physically weak are more prone to attacks of spiritual discouragement and depression. But if you recognize that the physical can be partly responsible for the spiritual condition and make allowances for this, you'll be better able to deal with spiritual issues. I think what he's saying kind of highlights a couple of things. Um, First, I think it shows us our proclivity to compartmentalize our lives. We kind of, you know, we look at the spiritual as something that exists over there apart from everything else. We, we, we do that with other areas of our lives too. We, we like to look at things in compartments because for me, that gives me a sense of control. Maybe you can relate to that. Um, I also think that it highlights the fact that we're not just spiritual and we're not just physical. We're 100% both. And I just want to offer you this. If this is true, if we're 100% spiritual and physical, um, we can't ignore the, our physical well-being and expect to adequately address our spiritual challenges. Um, I, I remember a season of my life where I feel like I experienced this. And um, I was living in, in Central America in a country called Guatemala at the time. And uh, through, through the work that I was doing there, um, I met my wife of 14 years. She doesn't know I'm going to tell this story. It's a good story. Um, soon to be 15 years. We celebrate 15 years of marriage in, in September. Um, uh huh. Thank you so much. We're excited. It's been a great journey. Um, she's way better at life than I am. I've learned a ton from her. So thank you. It's publicly thanking my wife. Um, at any rate, so she had made a short-term commitment to to serve where I was, where I was living, and the time came for her to leave and come back to Maryland. Which, you know. Um, in a sense, that's not really disappointing news. However, here's, here's, here's what made this disappointing news. We weren't just close friends or colleagues at this point. Like, I actually loved her um, with all my heart. Um, I had fallen deeply in love with Sarah. And so when she left, there was so much uncertainty with regards to whether or not I'd see her again. Would we even talk again? And, and what ensued was this period of silence that it felt like it took forever for that silence to break. And so for months, um, I'm, I'm praying, I'm meditating on God's word, I'm journaling like I haven't journaled before. I actually revisited, re- revisited some of those entries, and some of them were just like blatant, Satan, get out of my face, I'm done with you, Jesus is the king of the universe, there's no way you're going to hold me hostage. Point being, I was getting as vulnerable with God as I knew how to get. And, and, and I wasn't just experiencing silence with regards to the future of our relationship. I was, I felt like I was experiencing silence from God. Now, now let me just say this being silent before God can be extremely refreshing. However, when you're getting silence from God, when you want clarity or need clarity, that can be entirely frustrating. And so I was devastated. I was devastated at the thought of never seeing her again, or talking to her again. But what I eventually discovered is that I wasn't just like spiritually distraught because I wasn't hearing from God. I actually needed physical rest. 
Because my mind was turning so frequently and so quickly, I just wasn't sleeping. And so what I discovered is before I could make any move forward spiritually in a way that would actually settle my soul, I needed rest physically. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there before. But what I'm, what I'm really driving at is that the spiritual and the physical, these are things that are inextricably linked. I think this is what Jesus tried to show us. I think this is what the Bible asserts about people. Um, in fact, when it describes us as human beings, it describes a physical aspect. And it describes the fact that because we have a physical aspect, we need things like rest and food. We need things like health care. Because we have an emotional aspect, we need things like community and healthy relationships and friends, and sometimes we need counseling. And because we have a spiritual aspect, we need truth, a truth that's going to ground us when everything else is falling apart. We need a truth that's going to really remind us what we have in Jesus, this unshakable identity, this permanent love, this peace beyond circumstances, this hope in the face of death, because Jesus faced sin and death in a way that we couldn't, but in a way that's reshaped our reality. And and all of this to say, um, when it comes to followers of Jesus, because of how complex we understand humanity to be and human life to be, uh, I think we should be some of the most well-balanced, nuanced, multidimensional people on the planet. I don't think our response to spiritual drought should be one-dimensional. I don't don't even think our response to the people in our lives should be one-dimensional. I think that we should know um, that it's not just enough to sit and listen, and it's not just enough to put pressure on people or ourselves to change and correct behavior. It's not just enough to speak the truth. Look, as a follower of Jesus, I think it's important to come to grips with how complex, how our complex nature really does require holistic solutions, if we're as multifaceted and complex as the Bible suggests we are, I think we should consider how our physical well-being influences our spiritual well-being. And so we've taken the time to look at three factors that can lead to spiritual drought. Um, However, I think something way more important than factors leading to something are are what we do when we actually face it. So um, how we respond to our own spiritual drought is far more important. And here's why. Uh, How we respond to spiritual drought today has the ability to influence how we view and relate to God tomorrow. And I think there are people, perhaps they're here right now, um, that, that gave their lives to Jesus. And then they experienced a season of spiritual drought and you just weren't sure how to handle it. It shocked you. It caught you off guard. You weren't sure how to respond to it. And it's actually still influencing how you view and relate to God today. Or perhaps, and per- perhaps what started as, as, as something that was just a sense that you felt disconnected from God has morphed into something a little bit more serious. And it's really not because of the spiritual drought. It's because you weren't sure what to do about it. Maybe no one told you that spiritual drought was something you would experience. But it was some, regardless, it was something that you weren't sure how to respond to. Or maybe, maybe, maybe that's not where you're at, but maybe you know someone who today has some really deep reservations about God all because they gave their life to Jesus and spiritual drought came and they just weren't sure how to handle it. Something happened that completely disrupted their connection with God and they haven't figured out how to find it again. And so what I'm really suggesting is that if we don't respond appropriately 
to our own spiritual drought, God can become so distant and unreal that and those feelings can overtake every area of our lives, including our faith. And that's why I want to show you four things that you can do in response to spiritual drought. And if you put them all together, they're kind of like a, a, a treatment or a spiritual discipline that I believe can help you help us seek God when it feels like he's nowhere to be found. And here's what they are. First, you pour out your soul. Second, you're going to evaluate your hopes. Third, you're going to remember the truth about God's love and grace. And then fourthly, you're, you're going to, we, we have to learn how to preach the gospel to our own hearts. So first, you must be willing to pour out your own soul. Um, I mentioned before that, that, that Psalms 42 and 43, really from start to finish, they're written by someone who's experiencing this spiritual drought. And, and what they are is this completely vulnerable response to God. This person is legitimately pouring out their soul. In verse 4, that's exactly what he tells us he's doing. He says, I remember this as I pour out my heart. Um, and so he's not holding anything back. He's saying what so many of us have felt, that sometimes we feel abandoned by God. That sometimes our prayer life, our worship, our Bible study feels so empty that, it, that we feel disconnected from God. That no matter how hard we're trying spiritually, we just can't seem to connect with God. And so these two psalms together are this deeply vulnerable, soul-revealing prayer and meditation that I think kind of gives us a model for what we should do if we're not connecting with God through worship or through prayer or, or, if we don't or if we just have a general sense that he's not with us or he's not for us. Um, and here's the model that it gives us. Even when it feels empty, don't stop worshiping. Don't stop praying. Don't stop meditating. Don't stop seeking God. If nothing else, talk to God about how you're craving his presence and how alone you feel. The point I'm driving at is this, is that when it feels like these spiritual disciplines, the, that stream that you've always gone to, when it feels like they're not working or that stream that you've always gone to is dry, be more disciplined than you've ever been. Pray, worship, read, study your Bible, write, pour out your soul. Don't hold back. Don't mince words. Get vulnerable with God. So that you can discover what's actually going on in your own soul. Now secondly, you're going to want to take the time to evaluate your hopes. And um, there's something that's repeat, repeated through these two psalms. It's kind of a refrain. I mentioned this is a song. So it's, it's, it's a refrain in the song. It's in Psalm 42 verses 5 and 11. And then we see it again in Psalm 43 verse 5. And here's what it says. Why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. And now this, this might sound like a rhetorical question, but I, I'm convinced that it's not. Because what the psalmist is doing at this point is, is trying to listen to understand. And there's no way he's going to listen to understand if he's asking rhetorical questions. And here's why. We only, we only ask rhetorical questions to make a point. For instance, maybe you can relate to this. You catch your kids doing something that's quantifiably less than good. And so you find yourself saying, why did you do that? 
You don't say, why did you do that? Because you're trying to get to the bottom of it or figure out what was really going on. You say, why did you do that? Because your mind's already made up that there's this gap between what's right and what's wrong. You're convinced that your child did what's wrong, but you're also not willing to, to, to suffer the ongoing guilt that you experience if you were to say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So you ask a rhetorical question. This question of why, this question of why am I feeling this way that the psalmist is asking themselves, it's deeply introspective. And because the psalmist's spiritual drought wasn't a result of sin, it'd be easy to think that this kind of introspection doesn't even really seem necessary. But, but he's not looking for sin in his life at this point. What he's trying to figure out is, are there any things that he's placed his hope in that can't really satisfy in a way that only Jesus can satisfy. And I think when we take the time to, to, to search for and evaluate our hopes, what we often discover is that we've placed our hopes in things that simply can't satisfy our souls. And spiritual drought provides us this really unique opportunity to do that because it has an ability to reveal false hopes in our lives, things that we've built our lives on that really overpromise and underdeliver. And it's times of spiritual drought that allow us to ask introspective questions like, why am I reacting so strongly to my circumstances? Or what, what is it that really does give me a sense of deep significance? Or what do I believe I have to achieve or acquire to feel like I really matter? Or what is it that I actually find true rest in? Or, or are there any areas of my life that I, that I actually haven't surrendered to God. I think asking questions like this can provide us a pathway for spiritual growth. And here's a real simplistic way of understanding what I mean when I, when I say spiritual growth. When you, when you take the time to evaluate your hopes and you discover that there are things that you've placed your hope in outside of Jesus, here's what spiritual growth would cause you to do. You just simply ask God to help you stop making those things the center of your life and to replace them with Jesus. And the only way you're going to do that is if you get vulnerable with God and honest with yourself in a way that allows you to recenter your life on Jesus. And so evaluating our hopes, here's what it means. It means deep self-examination and identifying the things we've built our lives on so that we can recenter our lives on Jesus. So if you want to seek God through a spiritual drought, you have to be willing to pour out your soul, evaluate your hopes, but thirdly, it's important that you remember the truth of God's love and grace. Look at verse 6. It says, I am deeply depressed, therefore I remember you. Look, this, this is a picture of someone who is deliberately fixing their mind on God, and it's not in a general sense. Look at verse 8, because verse 8 shows us a picture of someone focusing on the love and grace of God in a specific sense. It says, the Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. And these words that are translated faithful love, they, they come from a Hebrew word, kased, which means unmerited grace and unconditional love. And for the writer of this psalm, what he sees when he looks down the corridor of time and all the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns, is what he sees is, is, is God's faithfulness through every step of the way. And he's remembering specifically how God has rescued his people from oppression and sustained them through economic collapse and slavery and provided a pathway 
to freedom. And so here's what I think is important for us to, to just remind ourselves of. It's important that when we're in a season of spiritual drought that we don't get taken so hostage or so captive by our circumstances and our feelings that we lose sight of the truth of God's love and grace in our lives. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about in a general sense. I'm talking about the specific ways we've seen him work in our lives. For our family, um, April 10th is a very monumental day. It's um, our fourth child's birthday. And every birthday is a monumental day if you're a parent. Um, we, we try to make a big to-do about that. But, but Kasaya's is especially uh, special to us. And, um, and it's not because... She's our favorite child. That'd be treason against myself if I said that. Um, but it is because when Kasaya was born on April 10th, she was she was so she was her she was so bad off that she ended up on life support. And where we found ourselves was a place of of like darkness and aloneness and challenge that we had never really found ourselves. And and what it required was um, a, an ability to to trust God in ways that we didn't realize we were ever going to be asked to trust him. And when medical, the, the medical professionals that saw her state and saw her on life support, and they were looking at all the intel they had told us that we should say our goodbyes, that was one of the most heartbreaking messages that we ever heard. And But, but what happened is God flipped the script and he changed the trajectory of that story. And now when we look back on April 10th, we don't look back on deep loss and disillusionment. We, we look back and we just see God's faithfulness. And so it's something that every year, um, there are parts of that story that I celebrate individually. There are parts of that story that Sarah celebrates individually. And then there's a part of that story that we celebrate collectively for the purpose of remembering in specific ways God's love and grace toward us. And what I would wager is you probably have something like that in your life, a season that you went through where you weren't sure what the next step was supposed to be or what you were going to do, but you saw God show up in a way that that completely changed your mind about who he was and how good he is and, and how faithful he is. And all I'm asking you to do is consider, consider writing that down, consider taking the time to, to, to actually remember that because that is what we see the psalmist doing. And what what I'm going to suggest here is that is part of seeking God in a spiritual drought. And so what we've seen to this point is we've seen the psalmist pour out his soul. We've seen him evaluate his hopes. We've seen him remember the truth of God's love and grace. And now what he's going to do, lastly, is he's going to take all of that, he's going to synthesize it, and he's going to start preaching the gospel to his own heart. Look at what Psalm 42, 8 says. It says, The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Now, now he's not talking to someone else. He's not talking to a counselor. What he's doing is he's preaching to his own heart. And what this, what this starts to show us is that we'll never really get out of a spiritual drought until we begin to speak the truth of the gospel to our own hearts. And we can't, we can't do this effectively unless we pour out our hearts to God. And unless we listen to understand what's really there. And unless we evaluate our hopes and, and come to grips with the things that we've actually built our lives on apart from Jesus. And we ask God to recenter our lives on Jesus. And we can't get there until we remember the truth about God's love 
and grace in our lives in specific ways. You see, see, the thing about going through a season of spiritual drought is this. It causes your mind to race and your heart to continually speak to you. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but, I, but the voice in my head rarely runs out of breath. And so the only way to interrupt it is to begin preaching the gospel to your own heart. And to do this, it requires a bit of a holistic approach. It's not just listening, and it's not just speaking. It's listening to understand what's going on in your own heart, and then speaking the truth of the gospel to your own heart. Look, I, I spent a number of years in Guatemala working with orphans and, and planning churches, and, and one of the, I would say one of the biggest lessons I learned quickly was that if you're going to, if I was going to teach anyone anything at all, I first had to become a learner, a student of a new culture, a student of a new language, a student of, of, of a new community, a new people. What I realized is you can't, and, and this might sound silly, you might already know this, so good on you for learning that lesson sooner than I did, but you can't just walk in assuming you know everything that you need to know. You've got to listen to their stories. You've got to eat their food. You've got to listen to their hopes and their fears and understand their strengths and their weaknesses and actually become a part of their community. But once you've done all this, there's an important step that you have to take. Eventually, you have to speak in a way that affirms the things that need to be affirmed and challenges the things that need to be challenged. And and the lesson learned is this. If you listen well, people might actually listen to you. you. And if you listen carefully to your heart, you might actually begin to understand what's really going on. And if you understand what's really going on, you'll be able to speak the gospel to yourself in a way that actually changes your life, that confronts the things that need to be confronted, that affirms the things that need to be affirmed, and that reminds you of God's love and grace that's been at work in your life the whole time, even when you couldn't see it. And, and we have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves in a way that challenges the things that we've placed our hope in and addresses the things that have caused us to become depressed or anxious or angry and in a way that helps us remember God's great love and grace for us in specific ways. And when we practice this, what I'm not saying is that progress will come quickly. What I am saying is that, that you will experience growth in your life, even if it's slowly. And so what I don't know, here's something that I really, this is just a question I have. I have no idea how the psalmist was able to effectively preach the gospel to his own heart. And here's why. These psalms were written more than a thousand years before Jesus came. And, and, and as the worship team comes up here, I just want to I I give you something an idea to hold on to that, that, that's vivid and it's clear and it's powerful. It's more vivid and clear and powerful than anything the psalmist had. The picture of Jesus we have offers us a way to preach the gospel to our own souls with the kind of vividness and effectiveness that the psalmist just did not have. You see, one of the biggest problems that we can encounter when we're going through a spiritual drought is that we draw the conclusion that God has finally given up on us. And even though, even though like, like we know intellectually that this is not true. We know enough about ourselves that, that maybe it should be. Because we have a hard time forgetting our deepest, most profound mistakes. And we have a hard time walking away from those painful things that we've caused. 
And deep down, I think we know that we deserve justice to some degree or another. I think we know that deep down, to some degree or another, we feel like we deserve abandonment. And, and, and I'm convinced that the only way that our minds can change and our hearts can shift is if we allow ourselves to hear the voice of Jesus, the one who was literally abandoned, the one who literally thirsted for God, the one who's speaking from a place of literal spiritual drought, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one whose enemies taunted him and said, where is your God? Look, Jesus didn't just lose the feeling of God's presence. He lost, he actually lost God's presence completely. He experienced ultimate spiritual drought, true abandonment from God so that, so that even though you and I might feel abandoned and alone at times, we can rest assured that we will never be abandoned. That God will never leave or forsake us. And when we begin to see how unconditional and how complete Jesus' love and commitment is toward us, we can start preaching the gospel to our own hearts in a way that won't just get us out of spiritual drought. It'll actually grow us through it. It, we'll, We'll put our heads up and realize that we're further along than we thought was possible. We've become stronger than we thought we ever would be and more humble than we otherwise would be capable of. And so, so, so I'll leave you with this. Whether you know what's caused you to, speak, to feel spiritually disconnected from God is not, is, is not the issue. What I need you to know and what I want you to take with you is that you can seek God even when you're going through a spiritual drought. If you're willing to pour out your soul if you're willing to evaluate your hopes, if you're willing to remember the truth of God's love and grace, and if you're willing to preach the gospel to your own heart. Let me pray for us. God, God, I think that um, spiritual drought is, uh, it's a condition that, um, that we feel more often than we realize. Um, and, I, and I'll just say it like this, God, I think it's hard for us to relate to a God that we can't see. And so what I'm asking you to do, God, is help us to be the kind of people um, who don't question who you are because we have feelings of disconnectedness from you. But help us to be people who are willing to get vulnerable with you and just let you know every time we have that sense. Help us to be people who are willing to pour out our souls even if that means sharing things with you that we really don't want to share with you. Help us to be people who are willing to evaluate our hopes honestly and, 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 and confess uh, when we find areas of our lives or, or, or things that we've placed our hope in that, that are apart from you. Help us to be people, people who, who run to you and not run from you when we feel spiritually disconnected. God, help us to be people who come to grips with, with your unfailing and your everlasting love to the degree that it will allow us to effectively preach the gospel to our own souls. God, we love you so much. And uh, we're asking that you would meet us right where we are and give us everything that we need to be the kind of people that surrender our lives completely to you. In your holy name, amen.